0: Please turn once again in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. I want to say thank you, Wesley, for choosing that hymn. Uh, It's one of my favorite Christmas hymns. It's not one that I grew up singing. I did not know it until I came to this church. Uh, Maybe it's new for some of you as well, but that hymn says more about the incarnation of our Savior than almost all the other common and popular Christmas hymns combined. Now there's some others that are also very rich and robust, but that one is particularly powerful, and it's based on... Uh, on uh, Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter eight. You know the grace of our Lord, though he was rich, became poor for your sake, so that through his poverty, he may may make many rich. So we, I'm very thankful. And I would encourage you. Fathers, we prayed uh, for today, uh, we prayed this week for our family life. A wonderful idea during the Christmas season, take some time with hymns like this. And just let's talk about what this says, making sure that your children uh, understand what we're singing as we sing these great Christmas carols that we have come to love. Well, our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 12 is one of, uh, I would say it's one of many verses. It's actually two verses, but many verses that every Christian should commit to memory. Uh, There are passages that I would call inspiration, inspiration. Passages inspire us by unpacking and explaining for us the the gospel and the work of God for us and God's grace. Uh, In uh, Hebrews 11, unpack the faithfulness and the faith of the faithfulness of God and the faith of the Old Testament saints. That is inspirational. But then we have others that I would call aspiration passages. In light of God's faithfulness in light of the gospel and in light of uh, who God is and his glory. This is what we should aspire to be. This is what we should aspire to do. Aspirational passages. Well, this morning we are transitioning from the inspirational part in Hebrews 11 to the aspirational application of Hebrews 12. Holy aspiration should never be separated from godly inspiration. Holy aspiration, desires for holiness should be fueled by, should be motivated by godly inspiration. As I said a little while ago, we've spent, I believe, nine messages in the chapter of Hebrews 11. We've taken a deep dive into the dynamics of what it means to live by faith. Uh, We've considered the impact of God's faithfulness on Old Testament saints, on their lives, their testimonies. And so, as, as we conclude that, we need to look in the mirror of God's Word and, and, and ask ourselves and ask the Lord, so what? What does that call forth from us? How should we respond to what we have learned? And the author of Hebrews is not simply providing us with an interesting historical narrative. He's calling us to action. You remember he's addressing Uh, Jewish believers who are finding that the weight of carrying the cross is becoming very heavy. They're feeling great pressure to abandon Christ and return to the fold of Judaism. And he's holding forth the fact, the reality that Jesus is superior. Jesus is better than anything in all the world. Why would you leave that which alone can give life and go to anything else? And so he's calling us to Run this race marked out before us. And as these beleaguered saints look at their lives, they, they see that they're facing one difficulty after another, much like those we read about in Hebrews 11. And we read in chapter 6, verse 12, that we are to emulate the faith and the patience of those patriarchs who inherited the promises, both faith and patience. So here we have this epistle trans, uh, 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 in transition from inspiration to aspiration or to application. And we must ask the question, what does it look like to live by faith? Well, the author of Hebrews, he, he is uh, presenting us the Christian life, he's representing the Christian life as a race. Uh, that's not unique to This writer, I don't believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. We're not sure who did, but Paul spoke of the Christian life as a race. And at the end of his life, he wrote to Timothy, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And we see that very same imagery here in chapter 12, verse 1, as my title says, it is a race of faith. Uh, I don't expect you to write down all four of these points because they're kind of lengthy. It's sort of in the, the vein of Puritanism, but listen, and if you want me to post them, I'll be glad to post them on Facebook, but here you go. The first, there are four statements. First of all, the race of faith is a well-worn path, and the heroes of the faith can inspire you to persevere. So, we can going look back at chapter 11. It's a well-worn path. The heroes of the faith can inspire you to persevere. But secondly, if you would run that race of faith, you must lay aside anything that would slow you down or trip you up. If you would run the race of faith, you must lay aside anything that would slow you down or trip you up. Thirdly, the race of faith is more like a marathon than a sprint. It requires endurance through the very seasons of your life. And then finally, you cannot run the race of faith in your own resources. So, let's unpack these together. First of all, the race of faith is a well-worn path, and the heroes of faith can inspire you to persevere. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, if you've been coming here for very long at all, you know uh, that what I'm getting ready to say, the first word in Hebrews 12, verse 1 is, therefore. And when you see the word, therefore, you're supposed to stop and ask the question, what is this verse Therefore, for? What is, uh, he's drawing a connection. He's drawing a conclusion of some sort. So, he's looking back at the hall of faith in this, this catalog of the, the heroes of the faith in chapter 11, and he says, the thing that marked their lives was their faith in the faithfulness of God. And he defines faith as endurance, as waiting on the promises of God, of believing that God is faithful. In verse 1, Hebrews 11, 1, it says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So it's an awareness that we're walking by faith, not sight. It's, uh, it's the, it's, faith is demonstrated. We see in verse 6, those who uh, come to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And that believing is not a mere intellectual assent, but it's trusting in him. It's trusting in his, that those rewards are worth seeking him, worth staking all on him. So these, these Old Testament saints that he mentions throughout the, the, the chapter, they, they, they continued to seek the Lord. They continued to set their hearts on that unseen reward that was set out before them. They persevered in their faith. They trusted the promises of God and their testimony is that it is worth it. To believe in the Lord, to trust Him because He's faithful. They found Him faithful. And the reason you and I can persevere, the reason we should persevere, is because God is faithful. And because we believe that persevering in faith is worth the glorious reward that is held out for us, whatever the cost may be. So these heroes of the faith in chapter 11 are are described as a great cloud of witnesses. And I want you to recognize there are many, many heroes in this great cloud. Now, There's a handful of them mentioned here. But if we're aware of what the Scriptures teach of all the Old Testament saints, and at this point, all of the New Testament saints and all of the saints throughout church history, it is a great cloud of witnesses. And we're surrounded. It's not just a few here or there but there's this vast multitude of saints who've gone before us, men and women who were faithful to God and who found him faithful in their race of faith. And if you think about it, the writer of the Hebrews was countercultural. He names two women specifically. Again, he's addressing Jewish Christians, remember that. And he names two Gentile women, who became part of the Jewish community and, in fact, became part of the genealogy of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. But there's some countercultural stuff going on here to emphasize it's not just the guys, men and women both are involved in this great cloud of witnesses. For three, 4,000 years before the coming of our Savior, for the 2,000 years since, all those saints who've gone before are part of this great cloud. Of witnesses. And it's important that you and I understand this. They are witnesses, they're not merely spectators. There's a difference. A witness is someone who bears witness to something they have seen or heard. They are testifying of their own experience of what they have seen to be true. So, what is it they testify about? What are they bearing witness to? They're not spectators watching you and me run saying you can do it, go. Rather, they are testifying to the faithfulness of God in their own lives. He was faithful to me. He'll be faithful to you as well. There's no indication in Scripture. I, I, I've read some, some, uh, some Christian uh, fiction that, that gives really interesting and fascinating depictions of the saints in heaven watching us on earth. But there's nothing in Scripture that says that happens. The indication is there totally taken with the glory of Christ. Uh, That doesn't mean that, that, you know, oh, they've gone to heaven and forgotten about me. No, but, but that's not the point. It's not that they're cheering you on, but rather their lives bear witness to the faithfulness of God in their lives and the assurance that you will find him faithful in your own life. Their testimony says... God was with us. He will be with you also. God was faithful to us then. He will be faithful to you as well. The reward was worth it. It will be worth it to you as well. Their lives testify to this truth of Hebrews 11, 6, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, this great cloud of witnesses, they're examples to us. Remember in Hebrews 6, verses 11 and 12 that we looked at some weeks ago, uh, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises they are an example that you and i are to follow we're to imitate their example of faith and patience they faced great tests and they were found faithful they overcame They conquered in the name of the Lord Jesus. Their testimony says, number one, God is true. His promises are true. His power is great. His grace is sufficient. His reward is glorious. Living for the Lord Jesus is worth it, whatever it may cost. That's their testimony. This great cloud of witnesses reminding us of these realities So first of all, as I said, the race of faith is a well-worn path, and the heroes of the faith can inspire you to persevere. But secondly, if you would run the race of faith, you must lay aside anything that would slow you down or trip you up. One of the the marks of a real Christian is he deals with sin in his life. The word that is used here is the very same word that Paul uses when he talks about putting off sinful actions or activities. In Hebrews, or excuse me, Ephesians 4, in verse 22, Paul says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And then he begins to identify specific sins that we're to lay aside or to put off. And in verse 25 of Ephesians 4, he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, very same word, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Peter uses the same word and the same emphasis he says in 1 Peter two one, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander get rid of it now we read here in Hebrews 12.1 that sin clings so closely and if you're not familiar with this, this word I want you to, to, to listen to this carefully do you know the term besetting sin sin that just kind of It just has your number. Your besetting sins may be different from my besetting sins, but we all have particular sins that that we find more powerful, more attractive, more seductive, more enslaving. And every individual has besetting sins he has to contend with. And it's important you're aware, what are those besetting sins? What are those pet sins? They may be, uh, as as one author wrote, acceptable sins. They may be socially acceptable, like, it's okay to complain a bit. Oh, but what did grumbling get, happen? What did grumbling bring about for the children of Israel? That was not a good thing, was it, as they crossed the wilderness? It's okay to talk about other people. It's, you know, (laughs) have you heard the latest? We all love a juicy story. Those can often be considered acceptable sins, but they're not not before the holiness of our God. We're to lay aside, we're to put off sin because it does cling so closely. It is persistent. It doesn't go down without a fight. Romans 7, Paul talks about that agony of that holy war, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't do or don't want to do, that's the very thing I do. This word clings so closely, it, it, it actually means easily ensnaring. Remember in, in Hebrews 4:12, I believe, or excuse me, 3:12, it tells us that we're to encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that we will not be taken in by the deceitfulness of sin. We have an enemy that will deceive you about sin. He will tell you things like, "There are some sins that's not that big a deal. It doesn't really matter you're not hurting anybody else. Or maybe just this once. Of course, if you give in to just this once, the next one is just one more time, right? uh, Thomas Brooks, in his wonderful Puritan paperback, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, talks about the different devices the enemy uses to snare us into sin, to, to put us in a sad and doubtful condition. And one of the one of his devices is he presents the bait and he hides the hook. He puts something out in front of you that is bait. It's a lure. It's alluring. It, it, it's appetizing. He appeals to your desires and when you take the bait, you get the hook as well. It's sin that is easily ensnaring. And once, if you know anything about fishing at all, I don't know much. I know a little bit. One thing I know is that that hook has a barb in it. There's a reason for that barb. Once it's inside the fish's mouth, it does not come out easily. When I sat on a hook as a five-year-old, that barb was not pleasant. We have to cast off sin aggressively, resolutely, without compromise, without excuse. We have to be ruthless in our battle against our own pet sins, our own besetting sins. When I was growing up, I grew up at First Baptist Church in Charleston. The church was founded in 1692. Do the math. It's an old church. And the building where they are now is is quite old. There's this brick wall at the backside of a cemetery that is hundreds of years old. When I was in high school, I was helping this older lady in our church, this godly woman. She was volunteering to do gardening in the cemetery, to maintain it, and plant trees. There are some trees there that I, I planted. It's kind of cool. But on one occasion, we were working at the back of the cemetery on this brick wall. There was this weed growing up the wall that she told me was called cat's claw. And uh, it, 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 the, the, the barbs in it or the, 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 the thorns in it are like little cat's claws, and they're holding onto the brick going up. And it, it doesn't look like it's that big a deal. <laughs> but when you start pulling it off, it breaks off and it gets on your arms and it really is annoying. But then you break it off at the bottom and it breaks off. You can't get the root up. And she says, you've got to dig up the root because if you don't, eventually it will break the wall. Do You see? It's difficult to root, to, just, just to deal with any manifestation of this weed. But if you don't deal with it, it's going to break the wall. It's going to destroy the integrity of that structure. And if we don't deal with sin, it will destroy our lives. It will wreak havoc. If we sow to the flesh from the flesh, we will reap corruption. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And that's a wonderful picture of repentance. We must not only get rid of the evident part of the weed growing up the wall. We got to root up, uproot those roots lest it grow back once again. And the Christian life is a life of daily repentance. And you may be immediately recognizing there are sin patterns in my life. there are besetting sins. I've got to deal with this. I've put it off. I've neglected. I've tolerated. I've made excuses for it. I've ignored it. And we read in Hebrews 12, you are to throw it off because it's easily entangling. It, it It will... cripple you, will hinder you in running this race of faith that God has set before you. So we have to deal with these patterns, whether it's a pattern of anger or of laziness or of lust or pornography or bitterness or malice or any other attitude or action sin. We are to deal with them, cast them off resolutely. But there are occasional sins. It may not characterize your life, but it's one of those, oops, I... I I didn't see that coming, but I sure fell for it. We have to deal with those as well. It all needs to be repented of. But I want you to see here in this text that sin is not the only thing that we're called to lay aside. We, this verb governs two different things. Number one, or number two is the sin that so easily tangles. But the first thing is every weight. That word refers to excess weight. It refers to hindrances or encumbrances, things, that, burdens that you're carrying that slow you down and trip you up in your race of faith. And if you're going to be serious about pursuing holiness, hear me, you need to deal with anything that gets in the way. I want to make an important distinction here. There are weights that hinder faithful running, and there are sins that cause us to stumble. All right? And if something is a sin, it's a sin. And I would say, in general, it's a sin for everybody, okay? If you're violating God's law, it's a sin for everybody to do that. But there are some things that might be a weight or an encumbrance in one person's life that's not necessarily in another person's life. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But, but, but let's, how do we, what is a weight? What is an encumbrance? What are we talking about here? It's anything that you enjoy. Anything that appeals to you that takes your eyes, takes your attention, takes your affection away from the Lord and hinders you from serving him the way you ought. Hindrances are not, those encumbrances are not things that we just, I don't even like us. That doesn't tend to weigh you down. You don't want to carry those around. It's the things that you deem precious, that you derive enjoyment or pleasure from. It's an extra weight that in fact gets in the way and slows you down. Now, some of you guys are runners, right? And you run distances, and some of you even compete. And when you do that, you don't put on a pair of lead boots. Would it be sin for you to do that? No. But it sure wouldn't be very smart. be foolish. Why would you wear lead boots to run a race? You are hindering yourself with that weight, with that encumbrance, and and If you're running a race, you want to be able to be as fast as you can. If you're running a long-distance race, you want to be light for your flight, as it were. So you've got to get rid of the excess baggage, the excess weight. So it's not enough to determine, is this sinful? But is this going to slow me down in this race? Does it distract me from faithful service to my Savior, the Lord Jesus? I had a... A, discipler, a guy that discipled me in college who used to tell us all the time, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. The bad part is the sin, but the busy part might be the encumbrances, the weights that we need to be aware of. So I would ask you, are you trying to run this race of faith weighed down with excess baggage? And it's not always easy to determine, is this baggage that I ought to lay aside? Now, there's such thing as Christian asceticism. I won't want to warn you against that. Asceticism means uh, self denial as an end in itself. I'm going to deny myself pleasures because I think there's somehow virtue in denying myself pleasure. Paul says that's a human philosophy that says you can make yourself more godly by saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He said that's, that, that's worthless. So, asceticism, which makes self denial an end in itself, is not biblical. But there is a form of self-denial that says, I will set aside these things that get in the way of what truly matters. And that's pleasing to the Lord. I will lay aside those things that I might truly enjoy, but they distract me from what truly matters, from what, what brings greater joy in the end, what brings honor and glory to my Savior, which is good for my soul. I'm willing to lay aside even those things that other people enjoy Innocently and, and, and in a way that can honor the Lord. But for me, for whatever reason, it may not be the right thing. Paul says, all things are lawful, but I won't be mastered by anything. And if you find that an acceptable behavior, an acceptable activity is taking over in such a way that it has mastery over you, for you, that's a weight, and you want to lay it aside. This is kind of a silly illustration. When I was in college, uh, a bunch of the people in the Christian group I was in liked to go... Roller skating. And this was back in the days, my goodness, back in the 70s, if some of y'all remember, uh, John Travolta staying alive, doing his disco thing, right? Well, we had a friend who was amazing on roller skates. He could do Travolta like you wouldn't believe. And we all loved watching it. And then I remember the time we went roller skating, he said, I can't do that anymore. It was feeding my pride too much. Was there anything sinful about what he, no. But if it was feeding his pride... It had become a weight, and he needed to lay aside. Do you see how subtle our enemy is to try to keep us from running this race God has set before us? It's not easy to determine. There are things we enjoy. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that God gives us or he provides richly all things to enjoy. God is not a cosmic spoil sport that wants you to walk around in misery. But he wants us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And he'll provide everything you need as well. So, this laying aside every weight, it requires honesty, it requires discernment, it requires sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. What is a hindrance to one person may not be a hindrance to another. There are some things you may enjoy in moderation that another, he knows it would quickly take over and slow him down and distract him. And it is difficult to give up things that in themselves are not wrong, things that you derive pleasure from. It's difficult to walk away and just say, not for me any longer. And there are others who will not understand like with our friend in college and say, that's being a little extreme, don't you think? But if there's anything in your life that's become so precious that you could not let go of it for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to ask, is this a hindrance? I'm not talking about your children or your spouse, although we can make idols out of our children and our spouse too. We absolutely can. That doesn't mean abandon them, it means get, the, get your heart straight in the right order. But we need to get rid of every hindrance. Don't leave any sin and don't leave any hindrance. You know, if, if, if you're getting ready to run a race and you realize there's a bunch of rocks in my shoe, and you, you, you dump the rocks up, but you leave one pebble. You say, that that pebble won't be much, it's not a problem. And then you run 20 miles, suddenly that pebble takes on a whole lot more influence than you ever expected it would. No problem having a pebble in your shoe if you're going to sit on the couch and drink lemonade. But if you're running, you don't want anything in that shoe. So it requires the discipline of self-denial. I'm willing to deny what I want. Most Christians today in our country, we don't even talk in terms of self-denial sometimes. Again, it's not asceticism where self-denial is an end in itself. But you deny yourself certain pleasures so that you can pursue that which truly matters. So you are set free from those weights and those encumbrances. You know, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 2 Talked about that reluctance for self denial, or he, he, he demonstrated it, I guess. He said in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes or excuse me, uh, yeah, Ecclesiastes 2, 10, 11, he says, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took pleasure in all my work and in this reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all the things, all that my hands had done, and what I'd toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I did not exercise any self-denial at all. I indulged every desire, every pleasure, and at the end of my life, I looked back and said, what a colossal waste. And Solomon says to you, and he says to me, I tried it. It didn't satisfy. Don't waste your effort. Save yourself some trouble. Lay aside the weights. Now, so, look at this verse, this, this word. How are we supposed to deal with hindrances? How are we supposed to deal with sin? He says, throw it off. And that's a picture of taking off a garment. And I'm not talking about taking off a nice suit and hanging it up or taking off a, a, a lovely formal and hanging it up carefully. It's like a stinky pair of overalls that got squirted with a skunk. And it's like, I want nothing to do with this. And you take it off, and you Ew. cast it off and have nothing to do with it Any longer. Not simply because you hate the consequences of sin, but because you have come to hate sin itself. It is putrid. It is offensive. Sin is what required my Savior to go to the cross. The Bible gives us a number of metaphors for dealing with sin. In Ephesians 4, as we we mentioned already, we're to put off sin as a garment. Take off this and put on the garments of godliness. But in Matthew 5, Jesus says, if your right eye offends, gouge it out. If your right hand offends, cut it off. He uses the imagery of amputation, of dismemberment to say be resolute in dealing with sin. In Romans chapter 6, he says, mortify sin, put it to death, show no mercy, kill it. With that cat's claw that was climbing up the wall, it's not enough to break it off at the the base of the ground. We had to uproot the whole thing in order to preserve that wall. So you and I have to, we have to fight sin deliberately, resolutely, whatever it takes. Jeff Thomas says, "Show show sin no mercy because sin showed our Lord Jesus no mercy on the cross. As we sang in the hymn, do you mourn? When you realize what your sin cost your Savior. So, we've seen, first of all, that the race of faith is a well worn path, and the heroes of the faith can inspire you and me to persevere. And secondly, if you'd run that race of faith, you must lay aside anything that would slow you down or trip you up. Thirdly, the race of faith requires endurance, it's more like a marathon than a sprint. There are a number of different types of races that people run. There are the sprints. I was a sprinter. I didn't have a lot of endurance, the 100, the 200, uh, for some even the 400. And as you've trained for that, you can go out everything you've got for the entire race. But those middle distances, the 800 meters, the, 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 the 1,500 meters or the mile, those require a little bit more endurance and you have to pace yourself a bit. If you try to sprint the whole thing, you, you probably won't make it to the end without hitting the wall. But then there's those long distance races, the 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 meters that you absolutely have to pace yourself. And you're following your watch and making sure you're on pace so that you have enough left at the end to finish. But there are also hurdles where you have these obstacles you have to jump over at various intervals in your race. And then there's the steeplechase. Do you know what a steeplechase race is? It's about 3,000 meters generally. And along that steeplechase course, there are 28 obstacles that you have to go over. Some, it's not like a hurdle that's in your lane and you jump on it. If you hit it, it falls over. It's this bar or this, this wooden bar that you jump over. You can, you can hurdle it entirely or you can put your foot on it and go over it, but you got to jump over those. And there are at least seven mud bogs that you jump into, have to run through. And usually they're on the other side of one of those hurdle things that you have to jump over. And sometimes life is like a steeplechase. Sometimes that race of faith is very much like that. Or like a marathon, 26.2 miles. And it's grueling because I've, I've never tried it myself, but I'm told that the body is able to retain enough nutrients for 20 miles. And then after 20 miles, you're just burning your body, basically. Every sprint, you have a lane, and you stay in your lane, and it's very predictable. But a marathon, every marathon course is different. It's unpredictable. And there may be surprises along the way. And so, recognize when we read here about run with endurance, the race marked out for you, recognize that every individual's race is going to be a bit different. Your race has been marked out for you. And it's as individual as you are. You will at some point encounter obstacles and hurdles where you are required to show endurance, no question about it. Uh, Unless you're able, his his race was a little bit briefer, right? Because he was murdered. Your race might be longer than mine. We don't know that. It might be shorter than mine. Uh, I was thinking over some of the twists and turns that have been involved in my race so far. And some of you know these things, most of you do. I didn't know that my race was going to involve me being a pastor. I, as a teenager, I was kind of hoping, but I didn't know. Uh, it's one of the great privileges of my life, especially serving at this church, and I mean that with all my heart. It's like, wow, Lord, would you be so kind to me that you would let me do this? I also didn't know that my wife and I would encounter infertility for a number of years. Or that we would adopt two children, which is a glorious, glorious blessing, a very happy part of that race. It's part of that race where the wind is at your back and you're running this level uh, uh, ground and you feel like, I could do this forever. But then we had a son born to us with very severe disabilities and suddenly the race became much steeper and much more complicated. There have been significant joys, but also significant failures in my race. And disappointments. And and, and 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 that's what God's called me to run through. Wonderful fellowship and partnership, but also times I felt very alone. And I'm not saying that to say, look at me, I'm saying that to say, you are going to have similar kind of Experiences. There will be times when the wind is at your back and you'll feel like everything is going great, but there will be other times when you're thinking, Can I take another step? It's an individual race for you, the individual. And God has sovereignly designed your race course. The Lord Jesus is the author and the perfecter of your faith. It is personal and it is individual. And even as these obstacles cause me to look more intently and more desperately at the Lord, and these blessings have caused me to look with more gratitude to the Lord. That's what he does in each of our lives. Look to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of your faith. God has gone uh, uh, before you. He has marked out of the race. He has carefully, lovingly, graciously, wisely put every single marker in your race before you. He's in absolute control with everything you will encounter. As we read in Psalm 139, all the days for you were ordained before one of them came to be. Psalm 103 says he is mindful. He knows your frame. He knows that you're but dust. He knows what you can endure. 1 Corinthians 10:13, Paul assures us that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that we can stand up under it. Ephesians 2:10. Paul says we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's your race, and that's my race. And this race of faith requires that you and I run with endurance. That's a major theme throughout the book of Hebrews, endurance. These Jewish believers were beleaguered, and they were struggling, and they were wondering, can we endure, and is it even worth it, and should we turn back? And the purpose of this epistle was to hold forth the glory and the wonder and the splendor of the Lord Jesus and say, it's worth it. Persevere. Endure to the very end. Endurance is a major theme in all of the Christian life. In Romans 5, Paul says, we rejoice in God's grace, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. Or in James 2, it says that we're to count it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds because we know the testing of our faith produces steadfastness or endurance. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, to the seven churches, over and over, the Lord Jesus commends them, he challenges them, but then he says to the one who overcomes, who endures, who perseveres to the end, I will give great reward. So endurance means that you will press on finish your course no matter how difficult it may get you'll keep running you will not uh, allow yourself to quit or to turn aside no matter how difficult that course may be no matter what challenges you may encounter I've read that in the Boston Marathon at the 20 mile mark there's a half mile steep incline they call it heartbreak hill and from what I read, it's not, the, it's not the last hill they encounter. It's just the worst. But then you go through this uphill and then the downhill. And some of the experienced runners say the downhills are even more difficult. But it's this up and down for the last six miles when you're absolutely out of resources. And if you would finish, you have to endure heartbreak hill. No matter how much it hurts. No matter how grueling it may be. And Christian, hear me, the heartbreak hills of your life will define your Christian character, but they will also form and refine your Christian character. Now, with that reality, it's, it's, it's sobering to think about. But with that reality in mind, how much excess weight do you think it's a good idea to be carrying? Do you think you can do it carrying extra baggage? Do you think you can do it if your feet are shackled by sin? Because the Christian life is not a stroll in the park. It's a race that requires all of our effort. It's not a leisurely jog. It's a race to the very end. But I want you to see that Jesus is not only the founder of your faith, he's also the perfecter. Every obstacle, every twist and turn, every step you take is ordered by our Lord for your good and his glory. And so we... Cannot say, God, this is too hard. I can't do this. We can say, this is harder than anything I've ever faced. There's no way I can do this without your help. Because he will provide a way of escape that we might endure under it. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. The heroes of the faith provide us with a great example. But the Lord Jesus provides us with a supreme, the supreme example. He endured the very end, endured the cross and scorned the shame. But I want you to see something that's very important here. If all we have is Jesus' example and the example of other saints, that's not enough because we not only need an example to follow, we need the resources to enable us to follow his example. We need him to work in us. So that brings us to our fourth point, which says you cannot run this race of faith in your own resources. It's a race of faith. Faith doesn't look deep down inside. Faith looks outside of you to the Lord. The only way that you and I can complete this race of faith, like Paul did when he said, I finished the race, I've kept the faith, the only way we can do that is looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's very interesting. If you go back and read Hebrews 11, there's one prominent name in the Bible that we don't see. In Hebrews 11, you do not see the name of Jesus. He is not held up for us as an example of faith. He is held up for us in chapter 12 as the object of our faith. Now, he is an example, clearly, no question. First Peter says that. He left us an example that we should follow in his steps. But these Old Testament saints mentioned in Hebrews 11, they they set a godly example of faith and trust in our faithful God. But Jesus is our faithful God. He endured to the end, and he enables us to do so as well. He set the the supreme example of endurance. Look at verse 2 again. It says, we're to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross was an experience of excruciating pain. Hands and feet nailed, hanging and all the weight of his body on those four nails. And as he hung, it would press his diaphragm up against his lungs so that he couldn't breathe. And in order to breathe, he'd have to pull against those wounds. And when he could bear it no more, he'd slump back and then he couldn't breathe. And this is constant heaving back and forth until the The fatigue overwhelms them, and they would die of suffocation. Excruciating. The most horrible death imaginable, but on a very deeper level, he endured the very wrath of God for our sin. He despised the shame. That means the shame, he didn't grant it the worth that you and I might expect. Sometimes shame overwhelms us. He overwhelmed the shame. He knew what was coming before he ever went to the cross. It's like he disregarded it and said, it is of no consequence. He did not allow that shame to hinder him from his mission. And it's one thing to think of the great pain Jesus endured, but it's another altogether to think of the shame that he endured. He was the Lord of glory. Thou who is rich beyond all splendor. As we sang from all eternity, Jesus dwelt in the radiance. He was the radiance of the glory of God. In John chapter 17, we call it the high priestly prayer. In the upper room of his disciples, he prays, and the very first thing he prays, first, thing, first request, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. The craving, the longing of his soul was, God, my Father, I want my glory back. And as we read the Gospels, we have no sense many times of what it cost our Savior to wake up every morning and just live as a person without the glory that was rightly His from all eternity before He ever went to the cross. But there on the cross, He hung naked for all those who hated Him, to see Him and mock at Him. It's the most degrading death imaginable. These men who should have been bowing before Him in worship, He was totally exposed and defeated before them. The sinless Son of God became sin in our place. The wrath of God poured out on him. He felt the depth of shame that you and I deserve to feel, that he might cover our shame, that his righteousness might clothe us, that we would be accepted before his Father. He set us free. And you might ask, well, how is it possible that the sinless glorious Son of God could endure something so painful and so shameful as the cross. I'm glad you asked. I know you asked that, right? The motivation to go to the cross was the joy that was set before Him. In Philippians 2, it tells us that He willingly laid aside all of His rights and prerogatives, all His glory that was rightfully His as God. He did not regard equality with God as something to grasp, to cling on to, but rather He humbled himself he emptied himself is the word that's used there and he became obedient even to the very point of death on a cross the incarnation is a demonstration of incredible condescension it's laying aside glory rightfully his why would he do such a thing what was in it for him and the answer is the joy it was set before him the joy of redeeming, for himself a radiant bride. And so Jesus, even when he was in the garden, saying, "Father, is there any other way?" Sweating great drops of blood, kept his eye on the prize, the joy. As he's hanging on the cross, saying, "My God, why have you forsaken me?" He kept his eye on the joy set before him. He willingly endured. The pain and the shame and the suffering. And he calls you and me to take up our cross and follow him. It's not a pretty little necklace design, is it? It's a difficult race. So we have Jesus' example, but we have more than his example. Please hear me. This is so very important. You can't follow his example in your own strength. But he not only provides you a perfect example, he provides you with ample resources. His grace is sufficient even for you. His power is made perfect in our weakness. You, you can't run the race of faith in your own strength, and you're not supposed to even try. And the only way we can finish this race and honor the Lord and receive the reward is if our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. Trusting in Him, our faith in Him, that He will guide us, He will sustain us, He will enable us, He will fortify us, He will protect us, and He will see us through to the very end. Paul says in Philippians 1 6, I am sure of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will. Complete it or bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He will do it. He began the good work. He's the founder of your faith. He will complete it. He is the finisher or perfecter of your faith. In 2 Peter 1, Peter says that he has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Now, I want you to consider this question. It's very important. As you read through the Gospels, you will see that Jesus never performed a miracle for his own benefit. Do you ever notice that? He didn't turn stones into bread when he could have after 40 days of fasting. He didn't perform any miracles for his own benefit. You know why? I'm sure there are a number of reasons. But I think one is he was accomplishing a perfect human righteousness as a man. He had it within his power to avoid the afflictions of this life. But if he's going to be able to say, as your great high priest, I can sympathize with your weaknesses, for I was tempted in every way that you are, and it was real. He didn't use his divinity, deity card, to escape the depths of temptation or difficulty or sorrow. He endured every bit of it so that he could equip you and me to do the same, so that he could be our faithful high priest interceding for us before the throne of his father. Well, that grace, that throne of grace, giving us mercy. So he can intercede for us every day, we read in Hebrews 7. So our trust, our dependence, our confidence is not in ourselves, it's in him. And there are times when you're running the race, you feel like you have to dig deeper and deeper. But what we read here is just rely more and more intently, more fervently, because you can never d- dig deep enough, you must look up to your Savior, the Lord Jesus. And there will be times, please hear me, there will be times that you will wonder, can I finish this? Can I endure? Heartbreak Hill just seems overwhelming. Can I make it to the end? And your feelings tell you you can't take another step. But even more dangerous than that, the enemy says it's not worth the cost. There's an easy way out. And you might begin to lose the confidence that God is faithful and he will reward you and it's worth it to trust him to the very end. And that may not be a very sudden conclusion. It may be something that you get worn down over time, it's very gradual, and you begin to see your resolve get weaker and weaker. You find yourself discouraged or maybe even completely disillusioned, crying out with the psalmist, How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Go back and read the Psalms of Lament and realize the great saints inspired by the Holy Spirit wrote those very words out of the anguish of their own Christian experience because their races was hard too. But they finished and so can you. Our Lord Jesus endured the greatest trials imaginable. He overcame them as a man because God the Father was faithful to him and he will be faithful to you and me as well. It's good for us to remember that great cloud of witnesses. That's important. It's good for us to listen to their testimony that God is faithful, but at the very same time, we must keep our eyes firmly fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is more than a witness to the faithfulness of God. He is your God. And he is faithful as the author of your race and also the finisher of your faith. He's your great high priest who daily intercedes for you if you're his child. He is the sovereign Lord seated on this throne of mercy who ordains every one of our steps and every one of our days is written before one of them came to be. He's the good shepherd who leads us in paths of righteousness and who restores our souls who will never lead us nor forsake us. He is the one Paul refers to and he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So Christian, please hear me. If you're not a Christian, There's a race in front of you too, but it's going to be a race to nowhere because being a Christian is difficult, but being a non-Christian is also difficult. But it just ends in hopelessness and loss. But it doesn't have to end that way for you. You can, even today, Lord Jesus, I want to repent. I want to trust in you. I want those resources that you give every one of your children to be mine that I might know life that really is life. But if you're a Christian, hear me. There are four words the author of Hebrews has for you and for me. The first word is inspiration. These Old Testament heroes that went before us, they they proved to us that God is faithful, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, throughout church history. We can be inspired by their testimony of the faithfulness of God. But the second word is preparation. Inspiration, preparation, laying aside the weight, laying aside the sin, Getting ourselves in a frame where we're able to run that race effectively. But then thirdly, aspiration. There's this commitment. I will, by the grace of God, run with endurance that race in front of me. I will have a steadfast refusal to quit. It's a, it's a holy aspiration that's fueled by godly inspiration that's enabled by this preparation. But finally, there's one more, and it is once again greater inspiration because we look to the Lord Jesus, the supreme example of the race of faith but more than example he's the one who empowers us he's the one who sustains us he is the one who perfects our faith yes follow his example but do it with absolute trust in his sovereign wisdom because he's marked out your course in his faithful provision that he will be with you through every twist and every turn in uh, his, his declaration that he will reward us at the very end He's gained his reward. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and he now is ready to share that reward (laughs) with every single one of his children who run that race. May we do so by his grace and for his glory.